Welcome to the Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And today, well, I have on one of my all-time favorite guests, Dr. Tommy Wood, back on the show. Uh, he's been on the show numerous times. If you haven't listened to his episodes, go back and listen to them. They're absolutely fantastic. He takes often what is what we overcomplicate and he really simplifies it for the rest of us. And I just think he, the way he thinks, the way he speaks, I thoroughly get a lot out of these uh, conversations and I think you will too. We, we discuss everything from performing under suboptimal conditions to building resilience, hot and cold therapy, fasting, goals and visualizing gratitude and everything else. Um, it's just such a fantastic episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. Right. Well, today's guest, he's a familiar voice on the show. He brings just such wealth of knowledge into human health and performance and longevity with his background in biochemistry, medicine, physiology, and neuroscience. But he's not just an academic researcher and professor. He's also an athlete himself, and he understands the, the practical side of, of human performance. And he's just been such a guiding light on this show. And for me personally, the amount of times I've just called him offline and said, hey, mate, what do you think? Everything from whether we're talking about building resilience or ancestral living or the nitty gritty of hot and cold therapy, which I hope to get into a little bit today as well. It's just so great to have him as a friend, as a mate, somebody I can bounce ideas on, but also somebody who can come and join us on this show. So without further ado, thanks for joining me on the Greg Bennett Show. Once again, the brilliant, the incredible Dr. Tommy Wood. How are you, mate? <laughs> oh, wow. What, what an intro. Um, yeah, I've got a lot, lot to live up to now, but... Nah. Um, Likewise, it's always so fun to to chat with you both on here and yeah. and uh, in all the other uh, ways that we interact. So, so really appreciate the invite and all your kind words, and I'm, I'm super excited to be back on the show. Yeah, mate, it's great to have you. And I think it's been um, well, it's over a year. I don't know. And it's like yeah. uh, we were just saying pre-show. I think this is your fifth time on the show, which puts you in. Uh, I don't think there's only there's only a couple. I think maybe Jan Fredino. Um, Maybe Alistair Brownlee, a couple of names, big names in the sporting world. But otherwise, mate, I think you're you're right up there with the most people, the most I've had on the show. So I appreciate <laughs> you. Um, how, how's the year been? What have you been up to? Anything? Anything new? Um, it's been. It's actually been a, a really good year. Uh, doing all the things that um, academics do. You know, getting uh, grant proposals funded so I can mm. fund my lab, uh, writing interesting papers, interesting collaborations. Um, some big projects I can't talk about yet, but I was super exci- super excited to, mm-hmm. to to have in the running that will will sort of take shape over the next couple of years. So yeah, it's been it's been a really it's been a really good year. Yeah, I I can sense big things on the horizon for you, mate. It's like I think we've even talked about you and your business and everything else because I look at the Hubermans of the world or the Peter Atiyas and I go, ah, no, 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 no. I've got, I've got someone better. <laughs> not, not, not to say they're not incredible. I'm, I'm not meaning to rubbish them, but I, I've always looked at you as somebody that is still, the potential is enormous um, and anything I can do to help in the future, I'd love to be able to help. Um, but, mate, it's been a year since we last spoke. We have a lot to cover um, you know, I, I sent you a list 
<laughs> and I'm like, huh, probably every one of these topics we could spend an hour on, but, you know, everything from, uh, you know, performing under suboptimal conditions to building resilience. And then personally for me, I've sort of said, hey, can we talk more about hot cold therapy and fasting and goals and visualizing and everything else? But there's a lot there to unpack. But before we do, um, how about a quick recap of your journey, um, where you've been and what you're up to and where you're actually working now? Sure. So my, my day job, as I call it, is as an assistant professor of pediatrics and neuroscience at the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, practically, what that means is I run uh, a basic neuroscience lab where we try to study ways to treat the injured brain. And mm. that mm. is uh, brain injury in babies. But we also do more and more work in traumatic brain injury and concussion because that's an area where mm. I'm um, intersected with a lot, particularly with athletes and um, the military as well. And then I'm also increasingly interested in how those things affect long-term brain health and what, what can we do to, to decrease the risk of cognitive decline, dementia, mm. uh, long, long-term. Then kind of intersecting into a lot of that is work that I've done over the past, I don't know, nearly two decades now, uh, increasingly with with athletes. So first as an athlete myself, and then as a coach to athletes, and then working in some digital health companies supporting the health and performance of athletes. And now um, I work primarily with Formula One drivers through the company Hintzer Performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've kind of had these two streams of my career, one that's sort of more medical and uh, very academic, um, and then one that's more applied um, in the sort of performance spheres. And now uh, what's what's nice about my job is that um, I basically get to do whatever I like, um, <laughs> as long as I can keep my lab funded and I can keep paying my own salary. Oh, yeah. um, and so a, a lot of what I, I, I work on now is this intersection between what it takes to um, create uh, a healthy brain or treat an injured brain and what it takes to sustain long-term uh, health and performance and all the ways that, that that we can do that. Well, I love how you've just described that. Um, and last episode when you were last on, we, we did talk a lot about how we can train the brain um, much like we train the physical body. Um, and that was a fascinating episode. If people haven't listened to that one, it's it's really quite incredible from – you know, doing interval training and rest and recovery and, and everything else. Is that still a topic that you've been fascinated in? Uh, absolutely. And it's something that I'm I'm doing more and more of in that kind of long-term mm. cognitive function space. So I've uh, written, some, written some papers, writing some more papers, trying to, you know, with large collaborative groups uh, of experts, trying to build um, what we call a, a systems model of, of long-term, uh, both cognitive function and dementia prevention. Um, some of that I do with a good friend of mine who's a neurologist, Dr. Josh Turknett. Um, and we both work um, as part of a group that's trying to uh, create some sort of social media campaigns and other campaigns around dementia prevention and the, the simple things that we can do to achieve that. And um, what Josh and I have focused a lot on is this demand model or demand coupling model of, of how the brain functions, which essentially says just like your muscles, the way you train and use your brain is probably the primary um, driver of how your brain functions. Of course, you then need to sleep and move and all these other things mm. that support those processes. But how we use our brains is something that I think has been underappreciated. Um, 
And then uh, part of that work dovetails into um, work with a dementia prevention charity in the UK called Food for the Brain, where they actually have a big database of people who've done online cognitive function tests, and they've also answered questionnaires about their lifestyle. And so we're now building this big research database that I'm the principal investigator of so that we can actually, um, in large groups of people, um, start to figure out some, some, some ideas of how these different aspects of uh, lifestyle and the environment interact and, and affect uh, cognitive function and long-term risk of, of dementia. Have you, are there any sort of um, big takeaways that you can share with us from, from the study that, you know, because I know when we talk about dementia, it's, it's like, uh, I think it's, a, what did I hear the other day? Well, a while back, but you know, the number one fear that people have is Alzheimer's or dementia and, um, and then death is number two. Right. And, and so I have to ask, like, is there, is there something that you're finding, um, through your research, through your studies, through your conversations that says, Hey, if you do this X, Y, and Z, it reduces this chances of, of dementia by this amount. Depending on, on who you ask and, uh, the studies that you look at, it's now thought that anywhere from like 40% to maybe more than 70% of dementia is entirely preventable. Wow. And the uh, American Academy of Neurology recently released a position statement that said like, now is the era of preventative neurology. So like, you know, not, you know, this big, fancy, um, slightly dusty academic body, even acknowledging that, that we have a huge amount of ability to prevent dementia at the, po at the population level of course we can't say right now if this person does these things they will never get dementia um but certainly if we can start to implement these things at the population level we would expect to see dramatic reductions in um in overall prevalence of, of dementia so what, um, are, what are those things yeah so uh, <laughs> the, the, don't hold out on me <laughs> the way that uh it, again it, it depends on who you ask and it's funny because <clears throat> in each study they focus on slightly different things which makes it difficult to really figure out you know what's the you some, sometimes you think they they use this term population attributable risk which basically says that if everybody in the population did this thing what percentage would we reduce uh dementia by at, at the population level right and everybody has slightly different answers but um some of the main things include um physical activity um mm you know, preventing or, you know, and partly through that, preventing adverse changes in body composition, which usually means a loss of muscle mass and um, mm. uh, excess uh, fat mass, um, smoking, uh, not drinking too much alcohol. Um, education is uh, a really important risk factor that's maybe not individually modifiable, but is definitely modifiable at the population level. I'm what do you mean education? Has, what do you mean by education? Yeah, so... The, the most protective early life factor for your long-term risk of dementia is how many years you spend in school, your, your formal education level. Oh, you, um, you'll be alive. You, you, you'll never get dementia, mate. <laughs> Didn't you yeah, I spent my entire <laughs> life as a student. Um, maybe, 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 that's why, maybe that's why I like those data. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, so so th there's two parts of that. One is that right, if you, if you spend more time in education, you probably come from a more privileged background. You have mm, better access mm. to food uh, or, or higher quality food. You're more likely to have access to exercise mm. and the time to do it. Uh, you're less likely to smoke, less likely to, to drink a lot. So there's a lot about the, 
the social environment yeah. that, that is that's baked into that. Mm. Uh, but you know, equally, if you spend more time in education, you're going to have a, a higher income long term. Um, but so there's all those parts, and yeah, that's yeah. something that we have to change at the population level, right? We should allow everybody to have access to the level of education that they want and not make it prohibitive because that's we know that's going to protect their brains long term Mm. um and part of that i think is because of the way um education uh and the active skill of learning directly stimulates the brain so i I talked about how how we use our brains is probably one of the most important uh, factors in terms of long-term risk of cognitive decline um and our our level of cognitive function tends to peak right around when we finish formal education. So mm. it keeps on increasing on average the more time we spend in education, you know, because that's when we're actually actively stimulating our brains. And then once we leave formal education, we tend to stimulate our brains less and less. And then cognitive function declines uh, alongside that. So that kind of educational cognitive stimulation, and that's something that we could do late in life. We talk a bunch about, about that on the last podcast, like skill learning, language learning, physical activity, coordination type movement, or like all the ways that that's beneficial for the brain. But then it also relates to other risk factors like uh, cataracts, hearing loss. Like if you lose these uh, inputs into the brain, that's associated with higher risk of dementia. So yeah, yeah. Um, get a ca- get cataract surgery if, if you have cataracts, um, get a hearing aid if, if you have some presbyacusis, you know, age-related mm. hearing loss. Mm. Um, so those those are listed as formal risk factors in, in some of these studies. Um, nutrient status is important, mm. uh, B vitamin status, omega-3, uh, uh, vitamin D, uh, probably magnesium. So eating a high-quality nutrient-rich diet is important. Mm. Um, that's probably most of them. That's uh, awesome. It, That's a great summary, mate. And I, I, and I appreciate that because I kind of I didn't say we were ever going to talk about this, but I, I, um, I think when we spoke about last time, we even concluded at the end that learning to dance was almost the ultimate thing that we could be doing because yeah. it, it it was physical. It required learning. It had the music element. It had coordination. It had all social, of those things social and social, social interaction. Yeah, is, is very important. Yeah, like yeah. The social component. Yeah, yeah. I've said that to Laura. She's all excited about going and getting dance lessons yet. But I, I've been. Are you going to go learn the tango with her? I'm, you know what, mate? I'm just such a natural mover. It's hard for me to follow steps. <laughs> <laughs> I like to be that, just free flow, mate. I'm free flow. I've got. I've, I like to just feel the music. I'm only told how to step into it. Um, do you do dance? Are you doing dance? No, I don't. But um, I would really like to learn something like the tango. Uh, mm, you know, mm. every time I th- every time I think about the tango, I think about you know that scene in True Lies. Yeah. Um, yeah. With uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger Arnie. and Jamie Lee Curtis. I'm like, that's that's cool. I'd love yeah. to be able to. Do yeah. That. Uh, I did learn dance at school way back you know, university. I, um, yeah. and then I did some, uh, it was called Ciroc Modern Jive. I did that for a number of years. So I, I did, oh. I, I did actually spend some time doing dance classes. Yeah. Um, and it is a lot of fun, especially when you're in your early twenties and you're wanting to meet girls. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> the social part I should say was fantastic. Yeah. Um, oh. but mate, let, let's, let's shift gear a little bit. Um, I want to discuss, and you brought up with me when we were preparing for this chat, um, about performing under less than ideal conditions. And I I want you to sort of dive into sort of what you see is crucial in this kind of way that we prepare ourselves in this fast-paced world, um, that we're all trying to optimize our lives 
all the time and looking for optimal as a word that I know that makes you cringe a little bit. And, and I want you to just explain to me what, what is it about being, you know, because I use it a lot. And so yeah. I, you're probably going to slap me across the face. And I, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on sort of living in this world where we're all searching for optimal living, optimal lives. You know, we're all trying to be perfect. Um, talk, talk, tell me your thoughts on all this. Yeah, th- this is something that I've thought about a lot over the last 10 years or so. And, and I, I definitely used to be the person who was like, optimize each of these things <laughs> mm, mm. It, you know, individually. Like, here's all your blood tests. Here's how you can optimize all of them. Like, here's all these lifestyle factors. Here's how you can optimize them. And <clears throat> the more time I guess I, I spend not thinking about these things academically, but thinking about these things in an applied fashion and working with people mm. who are applying these things in, in different contexts, the more I, I think that that's not the right approach for, for most, for most people. Mm. Um, the, there's a few reasons for that. The first is that for a lot of things, we don't know what optimal is, if mm. there is even mm-hmm. an optimal. Mm-hmm. Um, And so we're kind of making very significant decisions and interventions based on very imperfect data that that often don't even relate to the person we're applying them to. So as an example, there are are ways to think about how certain blood tests are associated with certain health outcomes. And those are based on sort of average population data. Um, and you might say, okay, in this range, this in this uh, blood sugar range, like this is where we see the lowest risk of heart disease and um, uh, diabetes or dementia, uh, all cause mortality. So just like the overall risk of dying. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important again when we think about these things at the population level. But for a given individual, that might not be that useful, and that's often because the people that we're applying this to, which is tends to be young, fit, generally healthy generally uh, well-off individuals, those aren't the kinds of people that end up in these databases that we use to generate these data. You know, you know, often they try and sample truly average people. And mm. so then the average person has prediabetes or diabetes, um, has at least one chronic health condition, and takes at least one medication wow. um, yeah. chronically. Mm. Right, that's the mm. that's the average mm. person, and there's, mm. like I have no value judgment about that. It just um, is. So yeah. It's an output of the world that we live in. Um, but if you try and take data from those people and apply it to somebody like me or you, we just, you know, f- for various reasons, we don't fit that demographic. Mm-hmm. So that's that's part. That's that, that's the first issue. Is like what data are we using to decide what is optimal in the first place? Um, and then the next thing is how do you approach the idea of optimization? So in order to optimize, you have to um, do two things, generally. One is you have to objectify a certain process. You have to attach numbers to it. And this is important because when we objectify things, then we get less of the subjective benefits from them. So to like, remove some of the science you speak. What's the, what that means is if you spend a bunch of time thinking about optimizing your meals, you 
um, decrease the joy you get from mm. sharing a nice meal mm. with your family and friends. <laughs> um, and we do this with sleep, we do it yes. with food, we do it with exercise. So I think by objectifying these things, we're decreasing our sub the subjective benefits, which often is due to social interaction with others and the general joy that these things should be associated with. Yeah, like and then um, if you're trying to optimize something, um, that necessitates you telling yourself that you are suboptimal. Mm. Um, and there are now several studies in, in multiple different spheres that say if you are constantly telling yourself you're not doing enough or you're not good enough, this negatively affects your physiology um, and your health. You can measure it in terms of stress responses, in terms of it, it changes our immune systems. And again, this is to do with um, the influence of um, social, um, like social interaction and social rank uh, like where we perceive ourselves in in the the, the rank of the humans around us, and that's uh, <laughs> one of the reasons why social media is potentially problematic. Is you spend all this time looking at other people who are richer, more handsome, more jacked than you are, and so you are automatically thinking about how you're not as good as they are, and that negatively affects your mm. health and physiology. So that's another reason why I don't like this continued. Um, quest for optimization is because it requires you to constantly think about how you're not good enough and that can negatively uh, affect your health. It's almost like an athlete, an athlete mindset. Sorry to interrupt. It's like no, a, no, no. that, that yeah, athlete go. mindset of pushing, pushing, pushing. It's like, well, where are you going? I say yeah. this to, I say this to actually all the, you know, I've got a four and a six year old. Sorry to interrupt, but I, it's like all the parents are pushing their kids so hard. And last, remember a couple of episodes ago, you told me to read the book coddling of the American mind. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, blew me away. I recommend great, it to it? every yeah. single parent I meet now. It's like yeah. all you're doing is pushing this resume building in your in your children. Just let them be kids. Anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt. I've gone. I've gone astray. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going, mate. <laughs> no, no. So, so that's uh, that, that's 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 all essentially um, it. Like those are the issues that I have with the mm. optimization mindset. And then the, um, we didn't talk about wearables and and some things where. Uh, there's there's plenty of studies that show that if you if you give somebody imperfect data that will affect their performance more than than the actual thing that that they're measuring so particularly around yes. sleep yes um so so that th those are the many reasons why I've I've become less of a fan of optimization um yeah. and and what I think is is more important um particularly as I work with um athletes but also those uh, in like the military setting say is that The, the most important thing is to be able to perform as well as you can, not under optimal conditions, but under suboptimal conditions. So mm. if you're constantly striving for optimal, the, the other downside is that you, you would be like, well, these are all the things that I need to get the best amount of sleep and perform my best the next day. And the thing is that 99 times out of 100, you're not going to be able to achieve that. So then if you're like, well, I didn't sleep properly and I didn't do this thing and I didn't get to do my 37-point morning routine that sets me up for optimal cognitive function at 9.30 in the morning, right? then you will perform worse because you're thinking about how you didn't do everything optimally. This is music to my ears, Tommy. <laughs> this is music to my ears. I'm telling you. Oh, go on. I've got some. I don't want to interrupt again, but this is so great. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then um, – it, it it all reminds me of this is that famous Mike Tyson quote, which is that everybody has a plan until they're punched in the face. <laughs> um, yes, yes. And and so that's exactly how how I feel. I think that mm -hmm. we should 
absolutely we all have things that we can improve that will improve our health will improve our, our cognitive function will improve our sleep right mm. and when we have control over those things we should control them because long term i believe they'll have benefit but much more important is being able to perform well when we've been punched in the face mm -hmm. so it's when you haven't slept properly um or when you haven't been able to exercise the way you like or you haven't been able to have your coffee in the morning which is obviously devastating for my cognitive function but uh, as my wife will tell you mm -hmm. um but these are the things that i think we should be striving for is is building then it's about building resilience in the system so that we know we can perform well when things don't go our way or, or we we haven't got control over the variables that we'd like to have control over so then um you think about all these important aspects of um lifestyle that that build resilience there can be physical activity you know you want to talk about hot and cold so like these or you know i think uh, some of the benefits that you might get from from fasting are oversold but it's a difficult thing and knowing that you can do difficult things and you can still perform well when you haven't eaten as much as you'd like to or you haven't gotten your perfect macros or whatever and that you can still perform i think knowing that is really important for your ability to perform mm -hmm. uh, when you're then stressed or things don't go your way so that that's the way that i prefer to think about it yeah we can we can all take some supplements to improve our nutrient status and we can all sleep better when we have access to it and we can all do you know better physical activity maybe to increase our overall fitness and resilience but the goal should be performance under suboptimal conditions rather than expecting everything to be optimal all the time right so in response to that you know i was talking to you you know before you hit the record button you know we we built and sold any question to whoop you know who, uh -huh. you, who you mentioned and um so I decided to do the whole sign-up process for Whoop and they're doing a 30-day free trial and I wanted to come in more from the tech and the app side and the, the growth side and going, okay, how does it work? And I've just got pages of notes, right? Because I'd never worn a Whoop before and I wanted to know what it was like. And and I talked to a lot of guys, you know, on in the sauna or at the gym or whatever that were wearing Whoops and tell me what they think and other guys saying, I had an aura, I had a Whoop and I didn't like to be told that my, my score was low in the morning. It was like reinforcing to your point, that I'm suboptimal. Yeah. And so for my, my main things that I wrote, whoop, and said, look, a lot of great things about the product. So, you know, and happy to give it a really good try and give it. But I said, the biggest thing I want is I know I've had a crappy sleep. I don't need <laughs> a thing on. But what I'd love is, hey, Greg, <laughs> and they're building their AI now, actually. So in fairness to Whoop, they're building their AI coach, which is actually starting to do this. Greg, yep, you and I both know you've had a crappy sleep, mate. Get outside, barefoot, ground yourself. Well, here's some tips. Go outside, ground yourself, maybe practice some gratitude, do something nice for somebody else, take five deep breaths, splash some cold water on your face and get on with your day. Mm -hmm. Like that is a useful tool. Like a little, yeah. hey, this is your day, you know, you had a couple of drinks last night with Tommy Wood and, and, and I know you two on the Terps. <laughs> you can still have a good day. That's what I want. You know, yeah. my psychology needs that. Someone who has more of an engineering brain and a data brain may not need that as much, right? Like, I don't know what you think on that, but I, I kind of feel like people that are that kind of engineering numbers, data people, they compartmentalize a little bit more and they kind of just go, dun, 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 and they're not too worried about the, you know, feeling like they haven't, that, that, that they're suboptimal. Whereas I need the, okay, you're still going to have a good day, mate. 
Yeah, and 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 I I'm the same honestly. So yeah, um, I there's there's a lot I like about the um, the whoop as as well, and uh, have had uh, an aura ring and some Italy and, and some other things. And <laughs> uh, the, the the main so what what happened to me, and it sounds like it's very similar to you, is like I'm having trouble falling asleep, and then I'm thinking, oh man, when I wake up in the morning, <laughs> I'm always going to tell me that I slept really badly. <laughs> And then, and then it does, yeah. and then that negatively affects your ability to perform. And that's those are studies yeah. that have been done. Like you can yeah. manipulate how much people think they've slept, and 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 it and it affects their mood regardless of how much they actually slept, and, mm. it, and it affects their cognitive function. So, <clears throat> I think there are absolutely. So there are absolutely. Whenever I talk about this stuff, there are some people who are like, "That's not me. I find this really helpful. You know, I can look for trends over time." And you're right; mm. it tends to be sort of very analytical people who can completely objectify you know they remove all emotion from the process yeah um and great i mean absolutely but uh, and please use it in that way of course i wouldn't i wouldn't stop you if you find it helpful um but my guess is that some majority of people don't don't behave like that because Mm -hmm. we know how much um these sort of subjective things can you know give us like placebo and nocebo effects and that's kind of uh, that's kind of what i'm worried about Mm. um part of it is also so when you think about uh, recovery scores or HIV scores or, or things like that, most of them are not really strongly validated. Like they're internally created and this doesn't mean that they're wrong, but they haven't really been compared to some like hard outcome data. So that makes me a little bit wary of some of them. Mm-hmm. And as you know, uh, these, t- these tools and devices get built out and they generate large data sets, that will absolutely become a problem of the past. Um, but then some of it is also like just because you haven't... so. So you, you've had experts on on HRV and, and stuff like that and on the podcast in the past, so I, I won't go into it too much. But we know that something like HRV, it doesn't tell you how well you can perform. It tells you what the cost of a given performance is going to be physiologically, right? Mm. So mm. people often perform at their best right when they're about to get really sick. Um, and when their HRV is tanked, they perform incredibly well, but then there's a large cost to that performance. So I think some of it is also interpreting the data, right? If you're not, if you're poorly recovered, it doesn't mean that you can't perform well, but that's how we interpret it. Mm. But what it means is that on that day when you have low HRV and you have poor recovery, if you're going to go do some like incredibly intense, like um, <clears throat> adaptation driving session, like an overreach session of some kind, it's going to have a larger physiologic cost. That doesn't mean you can't perform well. So part of it is also like how we're interpreting the data that we're getting. Yeah. I I think the thing that's really stuck with me from what you said is really just looking at how we objectify so much Mm. that we, we, we miss the, the joy and the, and the moment almost like we, we, we're so much, we're so concerned about optimizing performance with objective data that we're actually missing the meal right in front of us and the people that are right with us now. And it's that kind of mindset shift of being a little bit more present, being okay with who you are today yeah. <laughs> and this whole push, push, push high performance. And look, it's me. I've been that forever. And, and it's kind of like you go, I've actually had to work on it. I've had to work on these things and I'd love actually, yeah, in your experience, what are some of the sort of practical ways that, that we can develop the ability to, you know, have a life that when things aren't going planned, we can still have a good life? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I think some of, 
a lot of it for me just stems from this idea of of knowing that you can perform well despite difficult circumstances and mm. so in order to do that you have to expose yourself to difficult circumstances and that's that's one of the takeaways of the coddling of the american mind is that one thing that's happened uh, with parenting and schools and and in general uh, in universities is we have removed this exposure of of um having to interact with other people who are different from we are and and, and think differently and, and have different you know, political philosophical views mm. um and that's almost actively discouraged now um in in many large sort of academic centers and mm. and that's that's kind of i think helped to precipitate a lot of the issues that we see with being generally intolerant um of of others um and and finding people who have alternative views to be very stressful and an exposure that we don't want to be uh that we don't want to interact with at all we would just like completely ban them from whatever whatever it is when i actually think that being exposed to that and, and having those conversations is is beneficial because it's, it's a hard thing to do but then mm. it's the same mm. with like, physical activity um and regular exercise is a hard thing to do and you know all these other things that, that we've talked about i think there's benefit from knowing that we can uh, do well under suboptimal conditions and then that just means intermittently exposing ourselves to those things so that we have that knowledge and then you become confident um in yourself um to to, to then be able to do that as you need it's, it's interesting isn't it i feel like um <clears throat> we've worked so hard as a society to create this you know optimal living conditions for everybody right like this coddling yeah. of the american mind and the people that haven't read it please go read it but it's like we've 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 coddled and we've tried to create these safe spaces and make sure that there's no stress if we can. And look, for yeah. some of it, it comes with good intentions. Exactly. Yeah. It's Absolutely. good intentions. But it's like there's a massive risk of losing our natural resilience to anything. I mean, even with, you know, coming out of those COVID two years, I was talking to Laura about this morning, and, you know, we weren't sick for two years, any sickness, right? And then, boy... 2022, <laughs> the common colds wiped me out big time, time and time again. And my body was like, oh, we're not used to fighting anything. What are you talking about? And that was just on my own personal experience of it all. And finally, I feel now by the end of 2023, I get the common cold. It's not too bad, you know, and away I go. But I felt like 2022, the sicknesses we got were brutal because we stopped being around each other for a couple of years. There's, there's an interesting part of that which which relates to some of the things I mentioned earlier that sort of <clears throat> either social isolation or feeling like you have a low social rank, which is a, a subjective feeling. Mm, um, mm. If, if you if you the subjective feeling is more important than the actual like quantifiable social rank, depending on how you want to quantify it. Mm. Um, what it does is it shifts the way your immune system functions away from um, uh, an immune system that's well attuned to things like communicable viruses right because when you're socially isolated you've got nobody nobody to expose you to the cold because you've got like nobody around you mm -hmm. so your immune system becomes less good at dealing with colds and viruses and and better at dealing with things like acute um injuries mm. your healing is better but long term if you activate that state for a long period of time that is associated with greater overall stress responses and greater sort of baseline levels of inflammation so the reason why i'm saying this is because one potential, one sort of like hypothesized downside of the social isolation 
uh, through COVID is that we actually on mass decreased our ability to handle viruses because that's the sh- shift that naturally happens in the immune system when we become socially isolated. Mm. Um, so it's just like a, an unintended consequence that I think was interesting. Yeah. It's, fa- it's fascinating. And, and it's like we, you know, as athletes, you con- you're constantly trying to put yourself in a, in a state of duress and you try and overcome that state to become stronger. And we need to be doing that for our brains, for our overall health. We need to be challenging ourselves often and repeatedly. And yet we're a society that are trying to put ourselves in cotton wool the whole time. So, so how do, what are the steps to help society, you know, what, become, allow some difficult things to happen, but do it in a way that's still maybe manageable. So people are, I don't know, like, it's like, obviously I'm not saying I want people on the street and desperate and, you know, there's so many good things we're doing in the world, like, you know, trying to reduce poverty and hunger and of course, right. But there's, what was, tell me if this is right. Laura, Laura was sharing with me that the generation that went through the depression and the great wars, their gut biomes and their resiliency is so strong because of the amount of fasting and, and the uncleanliness and everything else they had to go through, they're actually more resilient than say our generation. By the time we get into our eighties, we're going to be in a bit of trouble. Is that true? Any word? Is that? <laughs> um, hypothetically, it, it makes a lot of sense because we know that biological systems become more resilient and their function increases proportional to the the stress that's that's placed on them mm. essentially up to up to a point right you can have so much stress that the whole system breaks down like if right say an athlete overtraining right would be a, a relatable example yes um but equally we live in the safest healthiest time mm-hmm. for the human species ever yeah right yeah. so like you say there's there's um, a whole bunch of um great things that, that have happened and uh, a lot of what we can we can do to offset some of the negative effects of being um you know constantly safe constantly warm constantly fed constantly sedentary um is that we have to build some of these things back in and i think that's where mm. some of the the real interest in um in some of these tools like fasting hot and cold exposure the optimal uh, exercise program to improve VO2 max and grip strength and all these things associated with longevity. Right, we're we're building back in these stresses that yes. we've essentially engineered out of our out of our lives, um, and so I think that's that's where they start to become beneficial, is so that we can we can create those adaptations that are all that are almost expected by our physiology, but that which we manage to get like completely get rid of. Mm. And <laughs> there's been some interesting papers that where similar points have been made um, that, that kind of all align with this idea. So uh, Charles Brenner, who's an expert in um, like NAD metabolism, which is you know a very hot topic in terms of aging, um, he wrote um, a review paper. And what he mentioned was that you know in, in animal studies and maybe some human studies, caloric restriction is supposed to be very beneficial for, for long-term health. 
But in reality, that's only because we now live in a society where we can all overeat continuously. Yes, so yes. It's, it's not that cal- caloric restriction is beneficial. It's that caloric excess is damaging. And that's kind of the baseline now. Mm-hmm. Um, and Inigo Samalan, who's, <clears throat> who's, very po- who's very popular nowadays uh, around uh, Zone 2 and related training, um, he wrote a paper about physical activity and basically said the same thing, which is that we started to talk about physical activity as this beneficial intervention but it's just because we've engineered physical activity out of our environment. Mm. Um, it's it's the lack of physical activity that's damaging, not that you know we have to you know we now have to engineer it back in. And I think it's the same for things like cognitive stimulation. You're know, actually using our brains in the ways that we we use them historically, you know, which changes as we get older. Um, and you know, back in the day, if you think about some idealized um, tribal or or kind of group scenario going back a few hundred or thousands of years right as people get older they become the sources of wisdom and the teachers and and right they're the repositories of knowledge um whereas nowadays as people get older you know they're no longer contributing to the economy so they just get locked up mm. in, a, in a in a nursing home and they don't get to use um their experience in the way that that they could have done historically and of course that's massively oversimplified but it kind of gives you the idea that we've engineered out these very human activities um, that drive beneficial adaptations in our physiology and through that give us long-term health. So we, ha- we now have to build them back in as interventions rather than you know, just them being part of how we live our lives, which is you know, what it was historically. Yeah, that's really well put though, isn't it? It's funny, I, was, um, I, I put fasting on this list that I wanted to talk to you about because the other day <laughs> I really, it, it occurred to me a bit to your point, I, I'd engineered this whole fasting out of my life that, mm-hmm. you know, I work from home, the, the kitchen's literally about six feet away. <laughs> and I realized I had a bit of an addiction just to food. And, mm-hmm. you know, my weight's okay and I work out and everything else and it's not bad food. But I was like, hang on, you know, I think this is an addiction. So I fasted because I thought it was an addiction, not because I was after Laura's like, oh, you know, you should do a blood test before and check what I said, no, 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 no. It's for the mental side. I need to, I need to go 72 hours just drinking water. And I think I had a little bit of bone broth. You might say I'm cheating, but anyway, I, that was the plan. 72 hours with bone broth on the afternoon of day two and the afternoon of day three. And it was brutal. I got to tell you. I was so pathetic. I did it and yeah. I'm proud that I did it. I'm proud that I did it because it was hard. It was really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And people are like, oh, Greg, how amazing did you feel after? I'm like, no, I didn't feel any different. I just felt better because I felt like I brought a little bit of discipline back in my life. And I want that kind of, I want to own my physical I, I, as much as I can. I, and I felt like I'd been a slave to the kitchen and the food. Yeah. And it was like that little bit, I need to find the right balance here. And I don't know. I, I, I recommend everybody give this stuff a go just to see how you feel. It would have been much easier had I done it, you know, in a wilderness retreat somewhere where I wasn't in my, you know, having to cook for the kids and yeah. you know, sit around the dinner table while everybody ate. Um, but it was, it was something I really enjoyed doing. Um, do you do it? Do you fast yourself at all? I, I don't. Um... And oh, I, I had done. I have some done some extended fasts historically. I think the longest one I did was was three days. Yeah. Um, yeah. And but I I don't. And the the main reason is that 
I don't think there's anything physiologically magic about about fasting. And like you said, um, that's not what you think either. It's the the cognitive and the mm-hmm. the control you've regained over your eating habits that that's where you saw most of the benefit. And that's where I think this can be beneficial. Is this um, and where we often see issues with long term mental and other health is where we we lose control um, mm-hmm. of something. It could be how we interact with technology. It can be how we interact with food. It can be how we interact with oh, everything, mate. Everything, everything. <laughs> everything. We're, we're, um, yeah. So physically regaining control is incredibly beneficial um, in those in those scenarios. Mm. Um, so I have a number of friends who do active research in this arena, and um, a lot of what we're sold in terms of the active benefits of fasting are related to um, studies in mice, and then when you try and replicate those findings in humans we don't see the same thing at all so i i I don't think um i don't think that fasting does anything particularly magic uh but um in terms of regaining control in in some area and knowing that you've done a hard thing i think there's 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 great benefit there so in terms of the adaptations that you get from things like fasting you also get those particularly from aerobic exercise and probably and probably much faster so if i'm thinking about physiologic adaptation i'm more concerned about my physical activity than I'm about fasting. Mm. Um, but equally I go through, through periods where I manipulate what my diet looks like. So when I'm <clears throat> building up towards a competition, I eat more calories, the quality of my diet probably decreases slightly so that I can consume more so I can put on some weight, a bit more muscle mass, right? That's important when I'm competing in, in strongman. Then afterwards I'll, I'll do the opposite. I'll generally decrease my caloric intake, increase my protein intake, and I will, I'll generally, you know, sort of manipulate my body composition uh, that way. So I, so I certainly apply some of these um, sort of dietary tools to my advantage when I, when I need them to one way or another. Uh, but fasting just for me is, isn't one that I use frequently. Interesting. I mean, I love the idea that, you know, physical, you know, physical aerobic activity can have the same sort of effects. I did watch a, a <laughs> this is where I do my study on the YouTube and <laughs> Yeah, right. This is normal. So I'm just, and I'm going to pose the question, but he was an Indian fellow who, you know, cardiac surgeon and maybe you know, maybe you know who I'm talking about, but he was something about if you can fast for a seven day fast and the fact that it could have a 70% reduction in cancer growth. Any truth to that? Uh, Yeah, I've heard talk of that study. That's, that's basically, that's basically not true. Um, a I way to way to just kill it. <laughs> so, so it is more new. Uh, so I'll, I'll come in. I'll come in all guns blazing, and then okay. I'll, then I'll yeah, no, good, some, good, some good. Some nuance. So, yes. so in general, those are, that there's no evidence for that in humans, literally at all. Um, but for certain cancer types, uh, manipulating metabolism is a, is a very promising area. Of, of current research. So um, there are some small studies that like fasting around chemotherapy can maybe decrease, like offset some of the negative side effects of, of chemo. Okay. Um, there, if there are, cert- there are um, some studies on ketogenic diets, so dramatically decreasing carbohydrate intake and like there's maybe benefit from ketones themselves, but also decreasing um, like glucose access to the cancers may may help augment responses, and this is kind of the trials are being run right now. So I'm not saying that this is, this is the thing to do mm. yet. Um, there are also uh, things like glycolysis inhibitors, so you're inhibiting 
um, the ability of, of cancer cells to use glucose as an energy source, and that could maybe um, augment some treatments. So um, certainly manipulating substrate availability, glucose levels, fasting, I think they may have a role to play in cancer therapy in the future. Mm -hmm. We're like right at the beginning of that. Um, certainly some interesting um, studies going on. Um, and I understand why you know people who need to worry about that right now may try some of those things and and you know it, in many cases it, it may be worth trying in sort of collaboration with your doctor uh, but we don't have great evidence yet but certainly a lot of promise mm. uh, well done you, you brought it you came all the way around didn't you <laughs> no, that was great though no I'm glad I asked because it was a it's an interesting one and you know I found uh, this last year we got a brand new lifetime fitness gym down here in Florida and it's it's absolutely fantastic and um, what's really cool about it is I never realized so many people were into fitness and working out um, and that when I'm in the sauna post-workout everybody's in there is listening to Andrew Huberman <laughs> right he's the number yeah. three podcast in the world right now that's unbelievable yeah. he's doing uh, fantastic amazing just that the, uh, essentially a professor can can yes get that reach I think is incredible yes and um, I'm always like, oh, he doesn't have any kids. He doesn't really know. <laughs> I'm always like, yeah, all right, he's good. But until he has kids, I don't want to hear from him. But look, I, I, um, and, and not put no pressure on you to have kids either, Tommy. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> but everybody in there is quoting Huberman, right? Um, and it's, 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 it's amazing. Oh, I'm doing my four by 20 minutes sauna with five minute ice bath. And, you know, I'm like, who has Maximize growth hormone release? Yeah. who? Ha and firstly, again, if you don't have kids, that kind of thing maybe is on the cards, but the rest of us are like, just crank the thing up. I've got 15 minutes. I want to sweat. <laughs> and then I've got two minutes to <laughs> plunge in the ice bath. Yeah. But, but talking hot, cold therapy, can we talk hot, cold therapy? Um, yeah. What, what are your kind of thoughts on it? What are the latest sort of insights and developments that you've come across in, in this kind of, um, as we're all trying to human growth hormone or hit dopamines in the ice bath or everything else. What are your thoughts on it all? Yeah. As uh, a Scandinavian uh, <laughs> native, obviously hot and cold is uh, baked into my, into yeah. my physiology. And it's something that I really, I really enjoy. Um, just built a, a new gym at home and there's a, a space where the, the sauna and the cold plunge are going to go sometime cool. very soon. Um, so these are things that these are things that I, re I really enjoy. Well, by the um, way, quickly, what are you getting? Which sauna? Which ice bath? Because I want to know. <laughs> oh, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna get them both from Redwood Outdoors. I have no okay. relationship with them as a no, company, no. but they're lo they're local. Oh, okay, okay, okay. They, they use local Washington cedar, um, oh, which beautiful. is a, like a very nice wood. Mm. So mm. I had, so for for those reasons, that's why. Okay, that's okay. Why Sorry I, to interrupt. But, yeah, but but equally, you know, get. Get a twenty dollar kiddie pool that you can fill with cold water, and, and, buy, and you can buy you can buy a pretty decent sauna from Costco. Yeah, nowadays, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, those little barrel yeah. ones and everything. I think yeah, I have them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so what was I saying? So, so I, I do think there's benefit um, to these things. I, I do worry a little bit that some of the benefit is um, overhyped, mm -hmm. um, and mainly because there's been this like huge focus on things like growth hormone release and and, and this kind of stuff, and what we've learned, particularly from the exercise literature, and, and, I, and I expect this to be very similar, is that acute changes in hormones basically mean nothing yeah. uh, for long-term um, outcomes. So like 
people talked about, or if you do this type of exercise, you get this spike in testosterone and that will support yeah. muscle if growth. If you do squats, your testosterone is going to go through the roof. Yeah. It's just not like yeah. that bump in hormones doesn't affect the outcome literally at all. So, mm. so I, I'm not a big fan of saying do this because you'll increase this hormone by X amount because I think we've learned several times now that that never really pans out to, yeah. to, to be the important thing. So then we can talk about hot and cold separately, but um, actually if, if anybody's uh, really interested in this, um, I, I just did a podcast on, on my podcast, which is the Better Brain Fitness Podcast, where we talked about sauna and dementia in particular, because there is some work published on that. Um, mm. But basically almost all the long-term health outcome uh, data on sauna comes from one study of male Finnish businessmen in the 80s. Um, and basically what they found was that the more time these guys spent in the sauna every week, um, the lower their risk of dementia and the lower their risk of all-cause mortality, such that those who went in the sauna four to seven times a week had a two-thirds reduction in their risk of death and dementia. Wow. And that is that amount of benefit is just it is unbelievable um and and i that that cannot be true um what i think is happening is that there's some what we call residual confounding which is that those people who are able to go to the sauna more frequently right um have other things that are also benefiting their health long term mm. and so when you look at the data like the guys who are who are spending and it is guys it was only men uh, guys who uh, were in the high frequency sauna group, you know, they were younger, they were healthier, they were fitter. And I think that, yeah, they adjust for that statistically, but I think they just haven't accounted for all that. Mm. So I think that the benefit is overhyped, but there is still likely to be some benefit because we know that um, uh, heat exposure can improve uh, blood sugar control. It may augment some of the responses to uh, physical activity or training. Um, it actually has sort of cardiovascular benefits very similar to aerobic exercise and again your heart rate's increasing your peripheral um vasculature is dilated because you're trying to offload um offload heat um so that's actually very similar um in in many ways to, to the heart benefits of, of doing exercise so, yeah. so there are lots and then like sweating is important because it's one of our de uh, detoxification mechanisms so i think there's a lot of reasons why it can be beneficial but i think some of the benefits are slightly overblown yeah I would agree. Um, I would agree. Go on. Sorry. Yeah. So, so then uh, with that is cold exposure. Uh, and again, a lot of the research has kind of compared people who use cold exposure a lot, like cold water swimmers, again, generally in Scandinavia compared to control groups. And they see some things like uh, they have like changes in uh, acute metabolism, better responses to, to cold where they upregulate uh, their energy uh, metabolism uh, more efficiently through brown fat, um, but also, you know, these uh, baseline these groups are different, right? They tend to uh, they tended to be leaner. They tended to have slightly better health. And then, like, is it that it's the better health that's driving some of this, or is it that the cold water exposure is driving the improvements in health? And right now, it's kind of difficult to untangle that. Um, but one thing that does seem to be fairly consistent in the literature and again they're just sort of right at the beginning of this is the uh, improvements in terms of mental health um and even just acute um uh single cold water exposure uh seems to improve um feelings of, of well-being uh, and mood and i think 
uh, long term, it's very possible that the cold stress creates oxidative stress. Uh, and then you become better at handling oxidative stress, like you upregulate your antioxidant mechanism. So that's a, so one of several reasons why it may be, may be beneficial. So I think there's some some good stuff on mood. And some of it may be you know, the acute release of um, endorphins and stuff like that. But some of it, I think, is also going to come from knowing that you did a hard thing. Right? <laughs> yes. We've already talked about that, right? You've done something yeah. which is quite unpleasant, <clears throat> and you know that you survived it. Um, what, what's interesting is that having listened to you know people who know this field better than me talk about it, um, the dose is probably not as much for cold. It's probably not as much as as you might think. So, so one guy um, who's who's written some papers, has done a whole bunch of research in this arena, basically said that all you have to do to get the majority of the benefits from cold water exposure are the I think the water has to be less than eighteen degrees Celsius, which is sixty something mm. Fahrenheit. Mm. Um, and you get in just until you can relax again, right? You know, the, the first thing that you, you sort of like, you start to hyperventilate and you sort of like scrunch up because of the cold, you sort of like get all tense. As soon as you sort of just like relax into it and can start to breathe normally again, that's enough, right? So that could be seconds. You don't have to have uh, freezing water that you expose yourself to for 20 minutes, right? Mm. So, so at least in, in his work, uh, the, the dose is probably much less than than people expect, um, or the the might might see elsewhere. So I think there's definitely benefit to both. Why that benefit is probably deserves some some debate, um, and the benefit is often overhyped. But again, I think for various reasons they drive some physiologic adaptations that are probably beneficial, but also. You know, doing hard and unpleasant things, I, I think, is good for us. And that's two good examples. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on the doing something unpleasant. It's funny. I uh, My protocol for both sauna and ice bath is take myself to the edge, right? Yeah. And, and, and not always, though, because I, I find I can push myself quite a long way and I love the pushing and being on the edge. And it's like sometimes that can be to a real detriment, like <laughs> you get sick. But I've noticed um, with the ice bath depending on what I'm trying to do that day, you know, if I have a podcast that I think is going to be maybe require me to be a little bit more focused and on, I tend to sit in the ice bath right until I get just a little bit of a chill going on that'll take me for a few hours, you know, that kind of alertness that you get from being chilled. Um, But then I go, I've been doing it for so much that I almost felt like I wasn't getting the dopamine and endorphin effect anymore. I'd get out and I'm like, my mood hadn't changed at all. I felt good because I'd done something. So then I took a couple of months off it, went back in. And then now I'm like, well, I need to challenge myself something more. You know, now the one at the the club is only, it's maybe 45 or something. It's not terrible, but so now I go under and do breath control work, you know, and go, okay, count to 150 or 200 as long as you can, you know, just like I have to try and find something else. And then somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, oh, no. Gary Brecker or one of the, you know, says, you know, you're freezing your brain and you shouldn't be going underwater. Is that any, is there any truth to that, by the way? I'm talking to the right person. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not worried about that um, at all. Okay. (laughs) How do these things get on on the internet, mate? I'm telling you, I don't know. I I don't know. I I think, right, if, if, if we step back a second and to be fair, I'm not, I'm not, not really familiar with, um, Gary Brecker's work, but I think some of what 
um, I believe some of what he says is that some of these, like we're talking about these beneficial stresses and he's like, we're taking it too far. It's too stressful on the body. Right, um, right, right, right. And I, I think there is some, um, like some truth to that. Uh, like often when I think about how amateurs exercise, they often assume that they have to go and like crush themselves for an hour. Right. Um, and <laughs> they're doing like a bunch of, like, if, like threshold work if they're doing aerobic training or like they're going and doing CrossFit and just like smashing yeah. the wads out. And just, more like, is better. Beat, more is better. More is better. <laughs> and like that is, I, I don't think that's the case. That stuff can be very difficult to recover from. Yeah. Um, I uh, Local to me is Joel Jameson, who's like an expert in, in a bunch of these physiologic adaptations. And I know that he's looked at thousands of people's of, of, of data and like that kind of training seems to be the most demanding on the cardiovascular system with with the least net benefit if you don't recover from it properly. So so I think there is something there. And then related to that, there was an interesting study uh, where they looked at sauna. And it, it was a high sauna exposure, but, but they took people and they exposed them, I think it was an hour of sauna twice a day for a week. And wow. in the women, five, and it was, it was a small study. So it was like seven women were in this study. But in in, in the women they reported that five of the seven had a delay in their menstrual cycle of two to five weeks. Whoa. So it is, right, these things are stressors and we can overdo it. Mm. Um, and, and I think this is, right, more is not more. And it's worth bearing in mind that a lot of the research on hot and cold exposure was only done in men and was not done particularly in in premenopausal cycling women where we know um, the system is very sensitive to fluctuations in energy input and, you know, total energy output and all these other stresses. So I think that there is some takeaway that says that, yes, some stress is beneficial. And I would say that some stress using these tools is necessary for long-term health, but more is not more. And often people who do a lot of it tend to do or can lean into doing too much of it. Yes, I'm putting my hands up. I'm nodding my head on that one. Uh, well, it's more, you know, you've got to peer over the edge and maybe go a step too far to know where the edge is. And it's, yeah. you know, and it's a hard one. You try to listen to your body and you're trying to figure it out. And some days the body's giving you great signals and other days you're kind of like, was that a signal? <laughs> you know, and you, and you just bolt right through it, right? And um, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like these days as an athlete or as a father, husband, and just, just somebody who turns up the gym, works out for 45 minutes a day and then does some sauna and icing. I have a better kind of gauge compared to when you're an athlete and you tend to overdo it. I mean, you're still in the space where you're competing and, you know, world's strongest man. How's that going, by the way? You mentioned that. Um, I, I haven't, I, I didn't compete this year. Some, just oh. like some timing issues came up with, with the ability to do competitions. Um, I'm probably... I'll see, but I, I'm I'm in this weird um, gray area where I can't really compete as a novice anymore. But if, then if I keep compete in the open category, I'm not strong enough. Yeah, um, yeah. At, at my body weight, just because there's just some complete monsters um, that you go up against, and I'm not. I don't care about winning, but I care about being able to do the tasks that are set. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's no fun if you if it's a max rep deadlift and you can't do it once. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But then next year I turn forty and I can compete as a master. So I'll probably, I'll probably compete again next next autumn fall. Happy fortieth for next year. 
Thanks. Wow, that's very cool. I can't believe you're still in your 30s. My goodness. Um, <clears throat> or is it because I'm so grizzled and haggard? <laughs> going to say so wise but okay <laughs> we, we can go with the previous uh i want to i want to just finish up on you know people are probably tired of me talking about it on the podcast but i found it to be really quite a breakthrough for me over this past couple of years and it started during covid 2020 and i really started practicing gratitude hard every morning and what i mean by that is not just going out and go oh you know i'm grateful for the weather and the running water and you know the house and the home and i do all of that but really feeling what I say mm-hmm. that I can almost feel it in my gut when I truly go, you feel, you feel whether it's a hormonal release or you can tell me, but I've been, and I've found that it's helped me with a massive slap of perspective. Yeah. Um, and when I start every day with that and I do try and do it every day and to your point earlier, it's like, yeah, some days I miss and it's like, okay, I can still have a good day <laughs> and maybe I'll do it a bit later in the day or whatever. But it's been really amazing to start the day triggering the brain in such a way it gets me to neutral and I can feel so good about everything. And then with on top of that gratitude, I also, you know, then visualize the future and, you know, that's hard when I'm actually – if you've just done gratitude, it's hard to actually shift the gear and go, oh, and I'm also going to push for this, this, and this. A bit Again, what we've sort of talked about, optimizing life. And I kind of go, actually, after you practice gratitude, you kind of often go, life is awesome. What am I chasing? Um, and then I finish by walking into the house going, you know, this could be my last day, how you want to live it, right? It's like that. I love that. It's kind of, okay, it feels really good. Is this something, is this an area that you practice on? Is it an area that you've done any research on um, how gratitude can affect well-being and your mental health? I've you know, certainly explored it academically right. a little bit um, just because when you exist in these health-related worlds and, and have interest in neuroscience, it, it's obviously something that comes up a lot. Um, and I, I think that it fits well into... And, and, and each of these is, is, is different in their own way, but it sort of fits into the group of, of um, these practices that help build uh, distress tolerance, say. And so I think meditation and certain types of mindfulness can come into this as well. And you know, part of it is just, I think, you know, some of it is, you know, right, if you think about all the things and people you're grateful for, you know, you're going to release... Um, oxytocin and all these other things that we know are very good for for the brain and um, various other aspects of health in terms of stress responses, right? So there's a direct physiological effect. Um, but it's also this sort of moment, uh, time spent in the moment um, is, you know, for various reasons seems to be particularly good for us because we spend so much time outside of ourselves and thinking about the future and what we can do and what we can achieve. Um, so sort of grounding ourselves in that, um, I think has a number of benefits and there's, there's a lot of debate in terms of what's the, what's the best way, um, best way to do it and, and all this kind of stuff. And I, and I'm not sure I really have the perfect answer there, but, I, um, intentionality certainly seems to be a common factor. It sounds like you're doing this in a very intentional manner. Whereas, uh, I think a lot of people could just pay lip service to this, right? I have my daily journal, I do it in an app, and it asks me these questions, and I quickly write them down, and, hey, I've done my gratitude, and that's going to be good for me today. And I, I, I don't right. think that's no. that's the same thing. So I think your intentionality um, 
makes makes a big uh, makes a big difference there. Mm. Um, and I think the that link to visualization, which I know is something else that you potentially want to talk about, is is interesting because um, that it that kind of the the difficulty switching from one of gratitude to visualization a very nicely demonstrates one of the potential downsides of visualization which yes. Yes. Um, has been um largely popularized by a psychologist called gabrielle Ottergen, and she wrote um a, a book called rethinking positive thinking mm. um and basically what she found was that when um when you imagine all these amazing things happening for you and you go like win the lottery and you're gonna be <laughs> rich and famous and all this kind of stuff when you do that and you and you visualize you yourself succeeding in a goal you decrease motivation to actually do the things that are required to achieve the goal um yeah because you've so, already done it <laughs> yeah because like in your mind you've already done it <laughs> yeah. and actually like neurochemically there is some like you, you're already celebrating the achievement uh, without putting in the hard work to do it so, so you're, you're less likely to 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 actually do the work so the important thing in that context and it's not the same as visualization in sports or, or learning which we can talk about as well mm. but um the important thing is to in that context is to visualize the obstacles and the things you need to do in order to achieve your goal rather than visualize yourself achieving the goal mm. if that makes sense mm. so and that's where so um uh, there's the autogen um, whoop process, which which includes identifying goals and then obstacles and and you know pre preparing yourself for how you'll navigate the obstacles to then achieve your goal. So I like that. Visualize the process rather than the end goal, uh, at least in that context. Uh, because if you're doing all you're doing is just like thinking, oh, all these amazing things are going to happen, which is what you've done with gratitude, and that's that's mm. a good thing in that context. But in terms of then striving to achieve a certain goal. Um, uh, you know what you're what you're visualizing um, makes a big difference. That's yeah, well put. I like that. Yes, yeah, so I think we all get caught up in the outcome, the outcome yeah. goals, and standing on top of the staircase and go, "Woohoo, that was awesome!" <laughs> the visualizing it's like actually no, focus on those process orientated goals and the obstacles you can face. Um, I really like that. I I've had some time recently where I um, you know I've been using AI and I'd say, look, <clears throat> for other people's companies, not my own you know, show me the success, you know, for friend, a friend's company that they're working on in five years time and write a newspaper article demonstrating the outcome of their success that they've got, you know, 5,000 subscribers and they got this, this, and this, and, and talk about some of the obstacles they faced to achieve their goals and the hurdles that they had to, and, and AI is amazing. It'll come up with this whole newspaper article. Yeah. I then copy that and put it into a Canva template, you know, with a newspaper article <laughs> put the images in. Okay. I've got a bit of time on my hands and then send that over to them. So I can do this for you, right? It takes me, it takes me 20 minutes and I can send this. And it's actually a really cool thing to go, okay, five years time, Forbes business magazine has Dr. Tommy Wood, blah, 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 blah. Here's all the things that he had to overcome over the last five years. And it's, it's been a lot of fun using AI and then all the tools at my disposal <laughs> to take visualizing and to your point, the process and the hurdles yeah. and actually putting it in a, and look, whatever. It's a bit silly, but I kind of like that of, I'm a bit of a futurist. You know, I like yeah. to look into the future and I like uh -huh. to dream a little bit. So I've always been somewhat of a visualizer, but I, I like the, 
hard work and the journey as well. Um, but mate, this has been really great. This has been really fantastic. I, um, how much time have I got with you? You get along? Yeah, we, we can keep going. (laughs) (laughs) That's a dangerous thing to say. No, no, no. I I actually just want to wrap up. I, I, these are, I've been, uh, I don't know if you did this last time, but I figure we could probably throw these at you again now. And they're just the final four questions. Um, okay. So first one. What would you tell your 18-year-old self? Whenever people answer these kinds of questions, I, I think that, that, that they often think about them from like, the standpoint of regrets, right? And, mm. and not, not all, I'm the painting with a, with a broad brush. But if, if I think back, um, you know, there are obviously things that, that I regret and the vast majority of them are when I treated somebody in a way that I would you know, now wish that I, I hadn't. It's usually interactions with, with other people in the way that you approach that, at least for me, that, mm. that that's what I regret. But very broadly, there's not that much stuff that I would tell my 18-year-old self because that person ended up where I am today and that's pretty great. I think you just um, say, just it, be yourself. <laughs> yeah and, and 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 of course it like it, it sucked a bunch along the way but so, yeah. so i can right like it does for everybody but so so i can think well if if my um 18 if if i was 18 but in today's world so i thought about it that way okay yeah um and and the reason for that is i think that there have been shifts in in the way that younger generations approach things um and so there are two things that i would say one is to be to be to be patient um and if i think back 10 or now 20 years right if i go back to my 18 year old self there are times when you're like i wish that i was invited to do this thing or i wish that somebody would recognize my expertise in this thing or i wish that i was doing this um and if you keep uh like focused on your values and 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 doing the right kind of work you'll you'll end up there it just takes a long time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Necessarily. So that's a, a I think patience is one thing. And then the next thing is to I, I would just say, because I think that like we talked about, maybe there's less of this happening nowadays broadly, just like do do difficult things, uh, mm-hmm. regardless of what they are. Um, I, I think that that's that's an important piece of advice for pretty much for pretty much anybody, especially as we engineer different difficult things out of our uh, out of our environment. And I've done like physical, mental, um, other things that were very difficult. And I think that's one of the reasons I've been able to, you know, achieve what I have. I like that. Do difficult things. And that'd be the name of this, this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. That's really cool. Um, all right. Next one. Who are three people you'd love to have, uh, for dinner? Ideally non-family, um, but uh. living or dead. Can be anybody. Um, hard. I, I had I had a list of three, and then b- before we started recording, we we were talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think I would have to. I would include. I would include him. I'd love yeah. to. Yeah. I'd love to have dinner with him. So then the other two that I would I would add um, are uh, the author Bill Bryson. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think like I just love love the way he tells stories about everyday life, which mm-hmm. I think is fascinating. Like one of like a brief history of nearly everything, which is basically a, a history of science told in a sort of a, a novel style way is like one of the best books I've ever read. Um, and, and he's done the same for various parts of the UK and about 
the human body and i just think that's that's um that's fascinating cool um and then uh the third person um so left on my list were ludovico Einaudi, who's an italian uh composer whose music i love and is everywhere even without mm. maybe people re- realizing it and uh uh, a sneaky fourth would be Omar C, the the actor who's in who's in probably my favorite film of all time, which is called The Untouchables. Mm, mm-hmm. um, so I'm, I'm gonna that's going to be a tie for the last. That's right. You can. You, I'll let you have four. <laughs> and didn't you just go? You said uh, you just went to handle the Messiah. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's what you do every year. That's a, a Christmas thing. I've done that every year at Christmas. I mean, probably for twenty years. I mean, we missed a couple of years like COVID and some other things. Yeah. But, I've seen it all over the world, no um, all kinds of different uh, arrangements. Um, yeah, it's just a, it's a it's powerful a music, tradition. isn't it? But yeah. it's also powerful music. My mum, yeah. who's seven, go, I won't say her age. She's getting older, um, and it was a lifelong dream of hers to join the choir. And she did yeah. the. She was part of the Sydney choir at uh, the Sydney Town Hall this last weekend. Actually, she's um, she's flying over here right now. Um, oh, cool. But but she um, she got to be the choir. In the Messiah, the handle, and just it. absolutely loved it. So when I saw you put that on Instagram the other day, I was like, ah, there we go. That's so cool. Um, all right, next one. Where do you see yourself in five years? I I honestly don't know because I've never I've never had a plan. Um, everything <laughs> just kind of I just kind of bumble along and, and fall into things. But uh, in five years' time. What kind of you know? I'd like to I'd like to spend more time working in like the applied science of improving people's cognitive function and treating uh, brain injury and those at highest risk. So like military and mm. um, and then dementia and dementia patients and you know, actually have like direct impact there and, and build some evidence that people can apply for themselves. Um, and I'd like to I'd like to write uh, a book and hopefully have that that book do do well mm. um so so maybe i'll put that on my five-year list but other than that like where i'll be what my job will be um probably can't predict it because i'm no. not sure i'll probably still be here uh doing the same job um uh, but you never know i think there'll be many more doors opening for you it's hard to say isn't it um sometimes you don't want to plan the five years it's actually nice to just go i don't know yeah you know it could be interesting all right. Now, this next question is not a morbid question. It's an exciting question. <laughs> if you had six months to live, how would you use your remaining days? I think you know, my answer would probably be fairly, fairly typical, um, but some portion of it would be travel and experiences um there are places around the world i'd like to go uh in particular i'd like there's a lot of things i'd like to eat um and not think too hard about yeah the, the down consequences of, of that of that <laughs> consumption which is which is uh something that you could certainly be afforded with six months to live um so you know i've, I've never really traveled uh in asia or south america mm. um but basically, when I think about places I'd like to travel, um, I would like to eat the things that they have there. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the main thing I think about. I'd like, you know, like do sort of Anthony Bourdain style um, yeah, travel. Yeah, that, yeah. I'd love to do that. And then, um, you know, you 
quit your job and spend as much time as you can with with your loved ones and, yeah. and family, which would require some travel for me too because they're sort of spread around. But th- those would be those would be my two two main things. I love it. I hope you don't get barley belly on your first day in Asia. <laughs> <laughs> takes takes out a month. You're like, damn it. Yeah, that's if you don't have much time, then that would be unfortunate. <laughs> oh, mate. Hey, you want to? I'm going to do just a couple of rapid fire questions because I'm actually just curious on some of the answers. All right. All right. And this one, I you've already mentioned a couple of books, but one book that you would gift to anybody. Is it that um, one? Brian Bar- yeah, Bar- I, I would probably, well, there's a couple, maybe depending on the person. I really like um, the Moth short stories um, and like they're, they're, they're good. Uh, another fabulous book of short stories I would give to anybody is um, Exhalation by Ted Chang. Just uh, amazing. Um, highly recommend it to anybody. Then if, uh, if somebody was more of a nonfiction kind of person, I would give them The Coddling of the American Mind yeah, yeah. or Behave by Robert Sapolsky. Thanks, mate. I go through audible books like you wouldn't believe, so it's always nice to, you know, and, and I have regifted The Coddling of the American Mind. Um, I do think it was an outstanding book um, that you put me onto last time we were on. And uh, so very cool. All right. Um, one movie that's really impressed you that we should go watch. Uh, yeah, if, if people haven't seen The Untouchables, they, yeah. uh, I, I highly recommend it. it. My favorite film of all time, probably. Um, it was remade uh, recently. So it's in, it's, the original is in French. Um, and it is slightly funnier if you speak some French, but still amazing. Mm. Um, just because there are some things that like, there's one, I think like one joke that only rhymes in French. So it's, it's not as funny when you see the oh, translation. Right, right, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, but, so it was remade. Um, it was called The Up, the Upside. It had Brian Cranston and, and Kevin Hart in it. But the original is, is much better. Although that one is also pretty good. So, and it's just, it's just like super heartwarming, very funny. Um, Ludovico Arnaudi, who was going to be at my dinner party, he, yes. his music makes up a lot of the soundtrack. Um, so just great, great film. All right, buddy. Mate, this has been really fantastic. I I love our chats, um, both online and offline. And uh, I know your time is valuable. And I I believe you even recorded a podcast right before coming onto this one. So you've been talking for a long time today. You're probably like, and I know you do them always standing up. Are you standing up still? Yeah, I am. Yeah. So you've been standing up for hours. Um, But always, mate, I just thoroughly enjoy your clarity and insights into often what I think we sometimes overcomplicate maybe. Um, but you have a way of taking these kind of things that we all look at as complicated as, as quite simplistic, to be honest. And it's, it's really refreshing. So I really appreciate you spending the time and coming on and chatting with me again. It's been a blast. Yeah. Massive pleasure. Uh, as usual, I really appreciate the invite and, and, uh, the, the time talking to you is really enjoyed it. All right. For everybody listening, you can find all the show notes at uh, bennettendurance.com forward slash media. All right. Stay on the line, mate. Cheers. Yeah.